Well, welcome everybody. Glad, uh, again, once again, glad that you're here to uh, come and worship Christ. It's what we do every Sunday morning, so I'm glad that you're able to come and be uh, with us today. Uh, as usual, a couple of announcements as we begin. Uh, we have community groups uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday throughout the week. That's really where the life of the church is experienced. You know this, but we talk about it each and every week because of how important it is, especially we're going to be talking about uh, sort of this connection as a church throughout this series in Philemon. So uh, this understanding that community group really is where that gospel transformation that we talk about every Sunday is experienced and seen in the lives of one another. So uh, if you're not in a group, I urge you, I encourage you, I implore you to uh, reach out to some of the community group leaders that you can find online, their emails, ask them about their group, ask them when they're meeting, what time they're meeting, how things are going, because uh, we'd love to have you in a group, because again, that's really where you're going to get to know Maranatha and be known by Maranatha. We also have a kids' ministry training coming up on January 15th at 10 o'clock. Uh, so if you are a member and you are part of the kids' ministry, which we hope all of our members are, uh, we would ask that you come to this kids' ministry training, because this is really where you're going to get sort of the philosophy and the purpose and and really the structure for the ministry in, the, in how we are trying to teach our kids the gospel. It's really, that is where we are starting the foundation, is, is with our children, with the gospel. We're not just down there uh, babysitting and managing them so you can be up here. We are teaching them biblical truths because we want that to be in their lives from as early age as we possibly can. All right, uh, well, let me pray for us and we will begin. Father, thank you so much for your grace. Thank you, Lord, for this church. Thank you for the opportunity that we can come and hear of your word preached and we can understand it. Lord, you give us eyes to see it and ears to hear it and hearts to receive it. Uh, Father, thank you that we have this Bible that we can come and hear uh, you speak to us on a daily basis. I pray that we yearn for it, that we thirst for it, and we as a church uh, unite around it. We, Lord, we love you and trust you. It's in your son's name we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so uh, last week I told everyone that we're going to be starting a new sermon series, uh, and that was true. Today we'll be starting a brief but yet beneficial three-week study in the letter to Philemon. So you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles to the letter in Philemon. Now it's only one chapter, so it can be a bit tricky to find. Uh, It's in the New Testament right before Hebrews. So if you're thumbing through there, you find Hebrews, go back, it'll be there. And it's on page 90 if you're going to use one of the Bibles in front of you. 940, sorry, not 90. That would be Genesis 940 is the page that you want to be looking for if you're going to use one of the Bibles in the pews. Now, a couple of the reasons why we elders chose this letter is because, well, one, it directly connects with Colossians, which was the letter that we studied right before Advent, and two, it draws on two wonderful truths, uh, two wonderful theological truths that are honestly fundamentally united. This letter from Paul to his friend Philemon teaches us how redemption directly connects with reconciliation. Redemption directly connects with reconciliation. Now, even though this is a short, lev- a short letter, we're still going to try and uh, chop it up into three parts. So today, we're going to begin with just reading and preaching on verses 1 through 7. So we're going to begin Philemon, verses 1 through 7. Therefore, uh, if you're able, please stand with me in reverence for God's Word, and I will read it for us. Philemon, verses 1 through 7. This is what it says. Paul, a prisoner for Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. And 
uh, Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become, more, may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. This is the word of the Lord. As we God, have a seat. Let me pray for us again. Father, we thank you for, once again, for uh, your word. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the revelation that we have through your son, Jesus, and how it is perfect and full and complete. Lord, help us to understand uh, what you have for us in this letter. Thank you, Lord, that we can come together as a church and worship you. Thank you for that opportunity. We trust you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so now as we begin this letter, I would like for us to notice that Paul is actually writing in sort of a different manner than he does in his other letters. And I say that because most of the time, Paul is writing to a church at large, right? He's writing to a general, a more general audience. And although he does send a greeting to the whole church in uh, the first couple of verses, uh, because he expects that this letter is going to be read publicly, he is in fact writing specifically to one person. He's writing to one person. This letter is meant for a man named Philemon. Now, we learned back when we studied Colossians that Philemon, this guy that Paul is writing to, was actually in some capacity a leader in the church at Colossae. And as we just read in verse 2 of our text, that church in Colossae met in his house. We also learned from Colossians that this letter was delivered at the same time as that letter to the Colossian church was actually delivered. Now, why all of that matters uh, has to do with who actually delivered those letters. In Colossians 4, we learn that Paul sent two men to the people of Colossae. One of those men was Tychicus, and the other man was Onesimus. And Onesimus is the guy that matters for this letter, okay? Because you see, this letter centers around the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon. And I'm giving us this background because this letter, this short letter, really builds on itself. We really do need to sort of follow the trajectory of all that Paul says. We need part one in order to move into part two, and in order to understand part three, we need to, be, need to understand what comes before it, right? All of that sort of makes sense. That's just how things would progress. Because this letter is about Paul's appeal to Philemon to seek reconciliation with Onesimus, even though Onesimus wronged Philemon in the past. All right, that's what this whole letter is about. That's what Paul is talking about. And here's the background to all of that. Onesimus, which we talked about back in Colossians, Onesimus was actually Philemon's slave. And at some point, Onesimus ran away. Now, commentators don't really know why he did this. Some speculate that Onesimus might have stolen from Philemon or that he did something that deserved a a formal punishment. Again, there's not a real clear answer. But likely, it wasn't that he simply didn't want to be a slave any longer, which I'm going to get to in just a minute. 
What gets us up to date with this letter is that Onesimus somehow meets the Apostle Paul and he is converted by the gospel of Jesus. Now, it could have been that Onesimus remembered Paul because uh, he was with Philemon, who was his master, and he was with him in his trips to Ephesus, and he witnessed his own master's conversion. So uh, when he needed help as a runaway, he went to the man whom he thought would actually help him. And Paul did. Paul helped him. Paul actually preached the gospel to him, and Onesimus got saved. Another possibility was that Onesimus as well was arrested, and providentially he meets Paul there in prison, where Onesimus then is transformed uh, in faith, and it causes him to desire to go home to make things right with Philemon. Now again, that's all speculation. Right? This is just the potential things of how all of this came about. They're really the only thing that we truly know about Onesimus. And what happens before this letter is that Onesimus is returning home or has returned home a born-again believer. All right? That's what we know. And, that's what the, uh, and it's the object of faith which serves as the foundation for Paul's appeal here. All right, the, the truth that we know is Onesimus is a believer, and that is what serves as the foundation for Paul's appeal. Now, because Onesimus was Philemon's slave, I feel as though just briefly we need to address this idea of slavery. And I think that this is wise because we all have a, a conditional reaction when we think about it or whenever we even hear the word slave. Uh, but what I don't want to do is for us to discuss it politically, right? Because the presuppositions that we would bring to the text would likely differ from the context of what was actually going on between Philemon and Onesimus. You see, if we try to make this letter say something that it's actually not, we very easily could be making the mistake of reading our, modern, our, our, our more modern ideals into what is actually happening in the first century. Now, that doesn't mean that what this letter teaches doesn't undermine the institution of slavery, because I think that it does, but we need to know this, that slavery then was in most aspects different from what America experienced and possibly what we so quickly imagine or what we are imagining right now. At that time, slavery was a major part of their social and economic structure. It was part of their social and economic structure. At that time, both with ancient Israel in the Old Testament and with Rome during the New Testament period, slavery wasn't based on a person's race. It just wasn't based on a person's race. As well, people could and actually would sell themselves into, excuse me, into slavery. Now, in saying that, by no means am I attempting to glorify this practice, but it was a way to protect themselves and to protect their family from starvation and even at times death. It was this means to do that. You see, they didn't have the sort of charitable organizations that we have today, like what we see in the world or even with the church. It was just getting going. Or even they didn't even have the governmental assistance from Rome that we might have today. Therefore, this system, in the way that it was run, the way that it was run really was a means to serve those who were impoverished, okay? 
Slavery also doesn't mean that people were destined for this, uh, this dangerous, hard labor. Some individuals served as teachers. Some served as caretakers in the home. Some actually even were trusted enough to run their master's businesses, just to highlight some of the possibilities that were going on. There is also often ways to acquire their own freedom. And when that happened, it was expected that the person in servitude would be let go with honor. They would be let go in an honorable fashion. Now, again, that doesn't excuse the practice. It doesn't glorify slavery because God doesn't do that. God doesn't glorify slavery. Slavery wasn't part of the original creation, and it wouldn't exist, or rather, it won't exist in the new heavens and the new earth. Rather, slavery exists because sin exists. All right? Slavery exists and it existed because sin exists. Slavery came into the world after the fall, which is why, as R.C. Sproul says, the Bible in both the Old Testament and the New Testament both attempt to regulate it in order to make the most good come from its effects. The Bible regulates it to make the most good come from its effects. In in the same sort of way, honestly, in the same sort of way, this is like how the scriptures regulate divorce. Neither are approved of, right? Slavery or divorce, neither are approved of, but because they do exist, attention is given to them in order to, again, hopefully bring about the most good from a bad Thing, which is also why we don't hear the Bible call for a full stop to slavery. Never in the Bible do we hear this full stop call for slavery because, regardless of how we feel about it, at that time it would have crippled their society and it would have made things even far worse for the people who were benefiting from that system. Instead, through God's regulation, Again, it existed, so God paid attention to it. God gave regulation for it. Through God's regulation, he demanded that there be reformation of its principles, which over time will lead to its abolishment. All right, and we can read those reformations in the Bible. We can read them right there in Scripture. It's exactly what we see. Colossians 3.11, Romans 10.12, Galatians 3.28. The simple one, uh, Galatians 3.28, this is what it says. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is nor male nor female. You are all one in Christ, which again is the truth at the foundation for Paul's appeal in this letter. That is the truth, that we are all one in Christ Jesus. That is the foundation for Paul's appeal and for this reality that we're talking about. Now, I needed to say all of that so uh, so we could have the same background information and the same emotional context for what this letter is speaking to. But also, I honestly, I tried to be thorough enough so we could all lay it aside. I wanted to be thorough enough so we could all take this information and lay it aside because the letter to Philemon is not about slavery. The letter to Philemon is about fellowship, all right? There is a context that comes to it, but it's about fellowship. You see, Paul has sent Onesimus home knowing the possible implications, and yet still Paul calls for Philemon to forgive Onesimus and to receive him as a brother in Christ. 
He calls him to forgive him. He calls him to receive him as a brother in Christ by following through with all the things that would be implied there. And Paul begins this appeal by grounding his words in the grace and peace of God. All right, he grounds uh, his appeal in the grace and peace of God, which is what binds our fellowship as the people of God. All right, it is God who does this. Look at verse 4. It says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all of the saints. Paul begins here in verse 4. He begins by praising God for what Philemon already possesses. He's talking to him about what he already possesses, knowing what is going to happen. You see, our ability to love and our heart of faith is only possible because God loved us first and gave us the faith to believe in Him. Does that make sense? That's just John, uh, 1, uh, 1 John 4.19 in Ephesians 2.8. 1 John 4.19 in Ephesians 2.8, that's what it says. Our ability to love and our heart of faith is only possible because God loved us first, first and gave us the ability to have faith. And if that's true of you as it is for any and every true believer, then it changes us. It should have changed us. It has changed you. It has changed how you live, and it should change how you interact with someone else. All right? It should change how you interact with others. Paul shows his gratitude for God's generosity. He's thankful to God for his generosity on behalf of Philemon, and then Paul challenges Philemon to express that gift of grace, to actually live it out. Look at verse 6. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Paul, of course, knew what he was about to do. Remember, this letter builds on itself. All the letters in the Bible are literal letters of the Bible. All the epistles that Paul writes are letters, and they're meant to be read in one breath. We chop them up so we can understand them better, but this builds on each other. So Paul knew what he was about to ask. He knew that he was about to make this appeal to Philemon to forgive Onesimus. So he paved the way for Philemon to take what he knew of Christ and to apply it. Paul knew that as a faithful steward of his own redemption, Philemon would want to experience the full knowledge of his own forgiveness. All right? He knew that he wanted he, that Philemon would be excited to experience the full knowledge of his own forgiveness. And Paul knew that when we freely give one another, we get to do that. That's how that happens. That's how we actually experience the full measure of God's forgiveness in our life. Now, by looking ahead, John MacArthur says this, Philemon could read about forgiveness, he could hear a sermon about it, but until he forgave, he would have no experiential knowledge of it. By forgiving Onesimus, Philemon would experience that good thing in him known as forgiveness. Again, this is also true of us, all right? This is how this practically plays out. This is what you can take home and, and try to wrestle with. Again, this is also true of us. The way that we interact with one another affects each other. Therefore, as the body of Christ, we must always work on our own awareness of this reality and responsibility that exists within our fellowship, 
within how we interact with one another, how we actually live out this gift of grace, this reality that's within us because of Christ with one another. We have been forgiven and given so much. So we should, in worship, care for others the way that Christ cares for us. All right? This is what Paul is trying to, to, to sort of string out for Philemon. Listen to Paul in verse 7. Verse 7 is both Paul's expression of joy for Philemon, but it's also the outcome of real Christian fellowship. Look at it, verse 7. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. In the rest of this letter, Paul doesn't actually explicitly speak about Christ. He doesn't specifically uh, speak about the cross, but what he does do is he, he sort of shows Philemon, he expresses this to Philemon through his actions that, uh, that we are bound to one another by the commonality of our faith that is produced by Christ. He shows Philemon the gospel. He doesn't explicitly preach the gospel, but he shows the gospel to Philemon. Now, Maranatha, this this, again, is us. This is, as we read this letter, we should try to practically apply and work ourselves out in this way. We share in the redemption of Christ, which reconciles us to God himself. But not just that. There actually is more that we are given because it gives us the ministry of reconciliation for one another. All right? We are redeemed, we are restored, there is this already not yet in regards to our salvation, which is this reconciliation to God the Father who is creator of the entire universe, but not just that, we also are reconciled to one another with the ministry of reconciliation. That is a great gift that we've been given. Therefore, maybe we should understand this. So, as another suggestion like I did last week, maybe you could take this idea of the ministry of reconciliation, grab someone from your community group, and the two of you, or the three of you, could go and study this. Try and get ahead of this understanding of what I'm talking about with the ministry of reconciliation. Now, I'll even give you a head start because the ministry of reconciliation is explained in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 11 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 21. Now, next week, as we get into part two, we're actually going to hear Paul's appeal. We're actually going to hear what Paul is making the request to Philemon for in his forgiveness of Onesimus. But until then, let's remember this. Until then, let's remember that Christ died for all of us and that those of us who live might no longer live for ourselves, but for him who for our sake died and was resurrected. That's the gift that we've been given. That's the truth of the gospel that we get to live with, that exists within us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Thank you for our reconciliation. Thank you for our redemption. Lord, you are, you are better to us than we deserve. You love us more than we show our love for you. You even care for us as we respond poorly to that love. I pray, Lord, that we as a church, that we remain united, that we continue to strive to, to be a light in this city and surrounding areas through our love of one another. Thank you, Lord, for this church. 
We pray for all of those who uh, are away and who are not feeling well. We pray for their healing. Lord, we're grateful, Lord, that you give us such great promises that we can cling to and and can be content in all circumstances. It's in your son's name we pray, in the power of the Spirit. Amen.